Amen. All right, my friends, we've been studying the life of David, and uh, up to this point, we've seen his rise to power and all the godly things that he's done, all the wonderful uh, faith that he has displayed in so many ways. But now we come to uh, the story that I uh, hate. Um, I love God's word, and I love this story, but I hate what it is going to tell us, which is that um, one of the most godly men in history uh, is going to do an evil thing. Um, And so David is known for two primary events in his life. One is David and Goliath, right? Everybody knows David and Goliath. And the other one is David and who? Bathsheba. And uh, second... Uh, Samuel is basically written like a, a pyramid. Uh, what you see in the first half of Second uh, Samuel is that David is is uh, ascending. There's almost nothing he he can't do. Okay, he he succeeds in everything that that he attempts. Uh, God is with him. Um, it's just victory after victory. He's consolidated the kingdom. He has established himself as king. He's defeating all his enemies. He's he is. Uh, uh, making Jerusalem the, the capital. He's banding together all these tribes into one nation, and it, he's just amassing wealth and, and allegiance, and it's just you know this great story of victory. And I would just love if that were to continue, wouldn't you? Just that, that David um, just was a godly man, and then he died. <laughs> but uh, that's not what happens. Um, in chapter 11, we get to the, the peak and the pinnacle of his story, and he has a, a decision to make, um, a, a temptation that he faces, and then he fails. And for the rest of Second Samuel, you just see this downward trajectory where David is going through pain, suffering, sorrow, loss, death, um, and it's just one tragedy after another, after another, after another. Um, and so it's it's disappointing whenever I read through. Um, scripture, and I get to Second uh, Samuel 11, I know that I'm in for, you know, some discouraging times. There's a lot for us to learn in that, um, but it is discouraging when godly people do ungodly things. Um, and so I want to turn our attention for a moment before we get to that story to James, okay, as a, a lens to look through to understand what is happening. Um, And so we're going to read James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. And let's stand as we do that this morning. James 1, 12 through 15, just to kind of give us an understanding of uh, why David does what he does and and why uh, he's not really very uh, unusual um, in that. And so it says this, says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promise to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And God, we thank you that uh, you have given us the truth as a warning and as an encouragement. Um, You didn't hide 
David's sin. You didn't cover it over um, and keep it from us, Lord. It, it was on full display for all to hear, see, know, and learn from, to know about you, to know about your radical grace and the power of forgiveness and the wonder of, of knowing you. Also, the, the challenge, the warning uh, that uh, we know that our desires are, are still there deep in our hearts that we have to submit to you, let you work through and heal and change. Lord, help us to gravitate towards the truth and not towards selfishness. Help us to understand uh, how precious our relationship is with you, Lord, that we would let nothing come between us, that having fellowship uh, with Jesus Christ, God, is, is more precious. It's more valuable than, than anything this world has to offer. Peace that transcends even our own understanding is available. And Lord, help us to run towards that. Uh, Lord, help us to remember that grace is still available even when we mess up. When we've blown it big time, God, you are still there with your arms stretched out, ready to receive us, Lord. We thank you for that. And all these things are clearly portrayed and uh, given to us as truth as a firm foundation in this story. And so we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and um, we're going to walk through uh, the situation between David and Bathsheba. And uh, I basically started this whole series on uh, this premise, okay, on this idea. Uh, David fought Goliath and, and conquered him, okay? He won that battle against that giant. He had a lot of giants in his life, but the, the giant that conquered him um, is found here, and it's the giant of entitlement, and the reason I say that is, is based on this verse, okay? 2 Samuel 11, verse 1 says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, you could underline or circle or highlight the word kings there. That's going to be very important. Uh, David sent Joab and his servants with him. So Joab is uh, David's uh, chief officer. He's the commander of, of David's army. Uh, and he sends him out with servants with him and all Israel. So all the military is, is going out to uh, battle as they always do every year. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But, okay, and here's where the entitlement begins to come in. David remained at Jerusalem. So here's the, the thing that we don't quite know. We aren't told uh, why David stayed back in Jerusalem. Now, what I gather as you uh, read through the rest of the story is that for whatever reason, David thought that uh, he's going to finally indulge himself in a basically a trip to Vegas, okay? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, and nothing good happens in Vegas, okay? We know that. He, he's going to do what he wants, um, and he feels entitled to do what he wants. He's not going to have to earn it. He's just going to take it. 
Now, this is how entitlement works, is that uh, we tend to think that uh, we can have what we want free of charge. Now, we're in a culture, in a time in our culture right now, where there is a gross amount of entitlement. Would you agree? We, we don't want to have to work for the things that we want. We just want it to be handed to us free of charge. And the reality is that, and I don't know exactly how to say this, but nothing really is for free. Okay? Somebody is paying for it one way or another. Um, and, and what David doesn't realize at this moment is that um, there are a lot of people that are going to pay for his self-indulgence. Um, Uriah and his family are going to pay. He, he himself is going to pay a, a price that he, he would not uh, wish to pay. And this is how entitlement kind of sneaks up on us and, and begins to lead us down the wrong path. Is that we think that it could be somehow for free, but it, it can't be for free. Um, there has to be a price paid. And so I don't know exactly where this comes from. I, I'm going to assume some things, okay? Whenever we get to some of these areas where the Bible doesn't explain stuff, then we can kind of jump in and try to figure out the mentality of, of Bible characters. Here's what I do know about David. He spent the first years of his life in the field with the sheep, okay? He was a shepherd, and he was the youngest. And so as soon as he was old enough, his family sent him out to take care of the sheep, and he did that uh, for many years. He, he does that to an extent where he is living in uh, tents, he's camping out in fields, he doesn't have a lot of cre creature comforts. Um, he's not really included in the family very much. They don't really respect or honor him until God points him out as the one who's going to be anointed as the king of Israel. Then I think things begin to change, but his lifestyle doesn't change that much. He joins the army at a pretty young age, probably. Now, I'm assuming some things here about his age. Uh, when he fights Goliath, I believe he's an older teenager, maybe between 16 and 18 years old. Probably not 20 years of age because he's not yet uh, legitimately in the military, but old enough that he's basically full-grown and able to, to uh, go into this battle, okay? So somewhere along the lines of that. Now, 16, 18, from there, he gets um, an exemption, okay? He gets to go into the military even though he's not old enough because the Israelites said you had to be 20 years old uh, to qualify for military service, but he gets in early. So he spends the next several years um, going on campaigns. He's in the military. He's leading uh, a a troop, a unit, I guess, of a, a thousand. He's got his own guys that he is leading on battles. But he's, what? He's in the field. He's camping. He's out, and he doesn't have creature comforts. He does that for a while. I don't know how long, uh, but several years, he's successful and victorious in his campaigns. And then Saul becomes extremely jealous of David, and he begins to chase him from place to place to place. And now David's on the run. He's a fugitive. He's got a, a few hundred men that he's traveling with, but he has no home. He finds himself in a foreign land in, in uh, a Philistine city, Ziklag, 
where he kind of has a home, but he's still going out and doing campaigns, and it's not his place, and he knows he's, it's not permanent. And so for years, this is his lifestyle. Then he finally becomes king, and as king, he is uh, required to go on military campaigns still every year. He's going out, and he's camping, and he's with his guys. And we'll see this more clearly portrayed here in a minute, but um, the reality of that, it is not just that you don't have creature comforts and your roots in, in your home and all that, but it's also very demanding of you uh, morally speaking, uh, because the, the soldiers were required to be ceremonially clean, pure, okay, righteous and holy in order to go on these types of, of uh, campaigns. So they had to uh, abstain from many things. One thing was marital relations, okay? While they were uh, with their uh, army, with their unit, they had to be ceremonially clean. It wasn't an evil thing to do, but it was made you unclean. Uh, and there were high uh, levels of requirements for these guys, and David's probably at this point about 50 years old. He's lived the past 40 years in the field um, as morally pure as a person could or should be. Very safe place to be. Would you agree? And now he's going to take a little time for himself. And this is where the entitlement comes in, uh, where you can kind of imagine that he's maybe saying, you know what, I've served God enough. And I've been, you know, abstaining from all these pleasures enough. And now I'm going to indulge myself. So here's what happens. Verse 2. It happened uh, late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, was walking on the roof of the king's house. Now his palace is the highest point in uh, Jerusalem at this point because the temple has not yet been built. Okay, when the temple's built, then the temple's going to be the highest place. But at this time in its history, David's house is the highest. So David is, in essence, a peeping Tom. I don't know where the term peep, peeping Tom came from. It should be peeping David. So it's on his house, the roof of his house. He saw from the roof of, uh, of the roof uh, a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And so um, this is 3,000-year-old pornography, okay? David is indulging himself in uh, looking at whatever he can find to look at. And at that moment, he should have known, okay, that this was evil and wrong, and, and he was guilty already. He was already sinning at this moment. Uh, the entitlement blinded him from the, the sense of guilt that he should have had in indulging in this. Now, um, there's a, a saying that we have. Um, have you ever heard this? You can look, but you can't touch, and, which is a bold-faced lie, okay? Our enemy has planted that lie in the hearts and the minds of many, many people. Um, and unfortunately, not just men, but a lot of women uh, repeat that terminology to their husbands, um, saying, that's fine. Um, and it's uh, not fine. Jesus said that if you look on a woman lustfully, then you have already committed adultery with her where? In your heart. And this is just the first step. David knew this. David knew 
it was wrong for him to lust after a, another woman who was not his wife. He, he understood that. He was very familiar with the law. He was very familiar with God's character, God's standards. He, he should have ran back into the house and got on his knees and prayed to the Lord, asked for forgiveness, and spent some time in, in worship. But instead, what does he do? Verse 3, David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. She came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, um, there are some elements in this story that are PG-13 or more. Um, so I apologize if... <laughs> If some of the younger folks in the room uh, are not too interested in hearing some of these things, but here's the deal, okay? Um, number one, it did not matter what Bathsheba's marital status was because why? Because David is, he's married, <laughs> okay? He's married. It doesn't matter if she's single or with somebody or married, he's Married, So that means that if he pursues this woman, it is adultery. He's already sinned by lusting after her. Now he's pursuing her, trying to find out her status. It gets a lot worse, okay? She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Do you guys remember who Uriah the Hittite is? He's one of David's 30 mighty men, okay? He's got hundreds of thousands. Last week we saw that he had hundreds of thousands of soldiers. He only had 30 mighty men. These were the guys that were with him through thick and thin, who protected him, who were putting their lives on the line when Saul was after David. They were with David. Okay? They were opposing the king, the current sitting anointed king, and they were with this fugitive king, and they were defending him, and they were loyal to him. And David knew this guy. He knew Uriah personally. He had known him for years, friends with him, okay? It, it shouldn't matter that much more, but he's not just going to commit adultery. He's going to commit adultery and betray his friend in the process. Now, who else is she? She's the daughter of Eliam. Um, Eliam is the son of Ahithophel. So uh, Ahithophel... Uh, everybody knows who that is, right? Very well-known Bible figure. Okay, now he's um, one of David's primary counselors, spiritual counselors. Uh, David goes to him frequently to find out what God's will is, to get wise advice. Um, she is Ahithophel's granddaughter, which means potentially, okay, I'm not saying absolutely, we don't know for sure, but potentially David knew Bathsheba from the time that she was a kid. She's very well integrated into every aspect of David's life. He knew she, who she was. He knew her family. He knew her husband. He probably attended their wedding, okay? And he's going to betray not only Uriah the Hittite, but he's going to betray Ahithophel as well, his counselor. Now, that's going to become important uh, later on when we see that uh, Absalom, David's son, comes into Jerusalem to take over and to kill his dad and he has a counselor 
And guess who that counselor is? Ahithophel. Apparently, Ahithophel wasn't too happy about David's relationship with Bathsheba. Okay, spoiler alert. So, a couple other things just to point out here. Um, she's purifying herself from her uncleanness. Uh, Israel, a uh, Jewish law that after a woman's period, they had to go through a, a time of ceremonial purification. Uh, her husband's been on the battlefield. He's gone. She's had her period. She's purified herself. Guess what? She winds up pregnant. You, you think she's in trouble? Um, I don't know necessarily if David could have just backed away from the situation and just kind of let things happen on their own, maybe, because she's definitely um, in trouble. They would put her to death. He, maybe he can skirt around the issue. I don't know her. I don't have anything to do with her. Whatever, she must have, you know, I don't know. He, maybe he could have lied. And, but David, being the problem solver that he is, uh, go ahead and he decides to get involved. Verse 6 says, So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So this is plan A, okay? And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing. Small talk. Um, how the people were doing. How the war's going. Um, so uh, basically, he's trying to convince Uriah that, that his uh, calling Uriah out of battle and out of the field is uh, well-intended. You know, he's, he's a buddy. He wants first-hand account. He's somebody he trusts. And so let's talk about what's going on. Um, and then verse uh, 8 is very important. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And why that's very important is because there's no question mark here. It's not a suggestion. This is a command. Go down to your house and wash your feet. Um, go down to your house and be a husband, okay, is what he's saying. Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. Probably a box of chocolates, chocolate-covered strawberries, maybe a bottle of wine. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, did not go down to his house. So here's what's happening here. Um, we could possibly try to read a little bit into uh, Bathsheba's guilt. Um, how much compliance did she, she give to this situation? Um, but the reality is that the Bible never talks about her in any other way but that she is basically a victim. David is at fault. David, And the reason why is because David has the authority of the king as a uh, manipulation and he's going to abuse that um, in order to get what he wants. If Bathsheba were to deny David, then she could be putting her life at risk. Okay? Um, so even though that's what she should have done, she should have put her life on the line and said, I'm not going to do what you want me to do because I know God, and that's not what God wants. Even though you're the king, you don't have the power, you don't have the right to demand that I do something evil. Um, but regardless, um, we understand that she's been uh, manipulated and she's been um, overwhelmed by the authority of the king. Now, what we do see is that Uriah, he says, 
no, I'm not going to do what you want, even if it means it's cost me my life. Um, he's going to defy uh, the ruling, sitting king in order to obey God. Now, there are a lot of scriptures that tell us about um, why this is. Now, I don't want to bore you with all the, the details, um, but uh, Deuteronomy 23, verse 9 and 10, okay? Well, it just tells us a little bit about this, but it says, uh, when you are encamped against your enemies, then you shall keep yourselves from every evil thing. So there was a law uh, among the Israelites that they had to uh, be ceremonially clean. We've already talked about that. If any man among you becomes unclean because of a nocturnal emission, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp. So they were to be ceremonially clean. And even though it wasn't a sin, it was a, a ceremonially clean issue. And, and Uriah says, I'm not going to do that because if I do that, I am removing myself from God's protection and I'm not going to put myself in that kind of position with God. Now, let me um, just explain something for a minute. Um, our government uh, has the ability to make laws, to, um, to make mandates, to make rules, to make legislation, to pass bills, uh, and do all kinds of things. And uh, not all of those things are are godly. Would you agree? Some of those things uh, are not godly. Some of those things are, are wicked. As a Christian, as a believer, my responsibility is first to God, to obey Him and what He says. Okay, that might mean that I put myself in uh, a, a difficult position with the government. That's what the early Christians all found, is that they were going to follow God rather than the government, and many of them got killed. Now, here's the other part of that, is that just because uh, you have a conviction in your heart about what God has said, and you believe absolutely that it is going to put you in contradiction to the government, does not mean that God will spare you the consequences. Does that make sense? You may suffer. You may go to jail. You may be executed. You may be fined. You may lose your property. The government has the ability to, to exercise the sword. This is what the book of Romans tells us, that the government has been established by God. They have the right to, to um, exercise authority on your behalf. And much of the time, we appreciate that. Okay, That's where we have safety in the laws and the things that keep us from harming one another because we know that the government is there to punish people who do wrong. But where it gets a little bit touchy is that if I morally feel like God is saying that's not right and I oppose the government, then I may not be spared the government's wrath. So you have to take very seriously whether or not you're going to obey God or the government in many cases. Ultimately, we would say every time, without fail, um, you're always better off to follow God than any other authority on this earth. Amen? But it's not a light thing. It's not an easy thing. Um, so Uriah says, no, nah, this isn't what God wants. I need to be clean. Um, so when they told uh, David in verse 10, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? This is the explanation. Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark of I and Israel 
so the ark was, you know, the box they would carry into uh, battle. It was it had the Ten Commandments and manna, and, and uh, at that time probably had Aaron's budded staff and things like that. So, uh, it, but it, what it was was a representation of the covenant between God and His people. So the ark is in the field. Um, Israel's in the field. Judah dwells in booths, okay, in tents. My Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So plan B, then David said to Uriah, remain here today, also tomorrow, and I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. And here's what we know about alcohol. The first thing that it takes is your judgment. And even a weakened, uh, in a weakened state, Uriah is still stronger than David when he was sober. He says, I will not do it. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Now, how wicked is this? He's, he's writing a letter that's going to get Uriah killed, and he gives it to Uriah to hand to his commanding officer. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then withdraw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. There's an implication here that Uriah deserves to die. Okay? He's telling Joab, there's something wrong with Uriah, and I want him dead. As Joab uh, was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men, and the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Um, here's the couple of things, okay? Number one is Joab himself is not really a person of great character. Um, I, I would just encourage you, follow Joab through the Scripture. Just look for the stories that include Joab, and you're going to find that he's kind of a scoundrel. <laughs> um, so... He doesn't ask any questions. He doesn't try to figure out, is this right or wrong? He just does it. Um, he's the kind of guy that, that you wouldn't really be surprised about that. Now, here's the other thing. I kind of wonder if Joab is thinking, um, man, if I do this thing for David, I got something on him. You know, he's going to owe me. So he's willing to do it maybe for a couple of different reasons. I'm not sure. Um, but the reality, too, is that and this is just a thought that I had, okay, take it or leave it. Um, I kind of wonder if David would have had Uriah killed regardless of what happened back home. Even if he went home and, and uh, spent the night with his wife, would David have had him killed anyway? He's, he's at this state in his moral character that I just kind of think that he's, he's off track so far. Um, it was not an unrealistic possibility. So Uriah dies. Skip down to verse 26. Now there's correspondence between the, the military and David about the whole situation. Um, but when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, okay, the, the grieving period was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. You think? <laughs> um, I, I really don't like that translation because the literal translation of that 
is that what David had done was evil in God's eyes. I think that's a better translation. It's evil in God's eyes. She goes through a mourning period. Uh, that's typically about seven days, okay? So here's the time frame. Um, she um, tells David that she's pregnant. How long would it take for her to know that? Anybody? A month. At least a month. She's got to miss her period, right? So Uriah's been gone. A whole month goes by. David hears from Bathsheba uh, four or five weeks later, probably, and she says, you know, hey, I'm pregnant. So um, now we got to hurry up and figure this thing out because time's getting going to get short or unless you have a really premature baby, okay? So uh, how long does it take for David to send word to get Uriah to come back? He's got to send a message uh, via horse probably, so I don't know how long it's going to take. It's going to take probably a couple, two, three days for him to get the message and another two, three days for him to come back. He's with David for a little while, and then he's got to go back into battle and go into the battle that's going to kill him, and then um, she's going to find out about that, so she's got to get a message back and then spend seven more days uh, mourning him before she can get married to David, okay? So all that kind of means that even if you compress that time as just as tightly as you possibly can, it's probably at least a couple of months between the time that she's gotten pregnant to the time that she's legitimately can get married to David. So here's one of the things that you have to understand. We all know this. Everybody knew what was going on. This was not hidden. This wasn't secret. Everybody knew. And so what David had done didn't just displease the Lord. Um, it, was a, it was a known thing that disgraced the name of the Lord. How could God possibly let this thing go? In the meantime, God's Holy Spirit is working on David, okay? If you read Psalm 32, if you read Psalm 51, you're going to get um, basically an inside look at how David feels during this period. So Psalm 32, he writes about this whole thing. He says in verse 3, he says, For when I kept silent. So when he says I kept silent, what he means is I did not repent before the Lord. I did not confess my sin to God. I just I kept it in. Uh, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now, that's actually a good thing in, in a way. Okay? What that means is that the Holy Spirit was working on him and trying to get his attention and draw him back to fellowship with God. And he just says, no, I don't, I don't want that. And the, the application for you and me, and I've said this before and I'll just say it again, that if you have a conviction in your life, which, which means that when you sin, you feel guilty, okay? Anybody ever feel guilty when they sin? That's a good thing because that means that the Holy Spirit is working on you to help you to know that you need to repent of whatever that thing was and draw you back into fellowship. It's actually a guarantee that you're a saved person. If you do not have guilt when you are sinning, then you should be very much afraid because that means you have no Holy Spirit in your life. The Holy Spirit is the deposit. 
guaranteeing that you go to heaven. And his job is to convict you of sin. That's one of his jobs. Enlighten you to the truth, convict you of sin, give you strength to live the Christian life, empower you to serve, all those things. But his job, one of his jobs, is to convict you of sin. David is being convicted. For how long before finally Nathan rebukes him? Months. Months. He's just miserable, and he just won't admit to even himself that he's done this wrong thing. He's just suffering in his sin. Finally, chapter 12, uh, Nathan the prophet comes. He is sent by the Lord. So here again, another person that's willing to take his life into his own hands in order to confront David about his sin. And he tells him a story, and many of you know this story, but he tells him about uh, the rich man who had a visitor, and then there's a poor man uh, who had just one sheep. The rich man had many sheep, and so the visitor uh, required a meal. So the rich man, instead of slaying one of his own sheep, he went and slayed this uh, little lamb from this other poor person who raised it like a daughter. And uh, what should be done about this? And David says about this, okay, As the Lord lives, this is verse 5, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Now, what you need to know is that um, stealing a sheep in Israel was not a capital offense. Okay, a, uh, murder is a capital offense. Um, adultery is a capital offense. David has actually broken all five of the Ten Commandments that deal with uh, per interaction between people. Uh, he commits adultery. He murders. He gives false witness when he sends the letter. Um, he uh, covets his neighbor's wife, and uh, what's the last one? Steals. He steals Bathsheba, and she becomes his wife. All five. The guy who steals a sheep doesn't deserve to die. David is so self-righteous. I mean, it's just kind of weird. He doesn't see himself in this. And then uh, what he says is, He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So he is actually prophesying on himself what God is going to do to him. Number one, his son by Bathsheba is going to die. Why we know that there are months in between here is because uh, right about the time that, that he um, is born is, is when this is happening, he dies on the seventh day, which means that he dies without a name, without being circumcised, without that blessing. Uh, on the eighth day is when they would circumcise a child and give it a name. He has no name. Um, and so that's a punishment that David, uh, is in, that he experiences. But now he's also got three other sons that are going to die by the sword. So he's going to pay fourfold for, for what he has done. Um, his son Amnon rapes his daughter Tamar. Okay, his son Absalom kills Amnon. Uh, and then Am, Absalom uh, comes in and he tries to be the king and uh, he's killed by the sword. And then he's got another son that Solomon kills because he tries to take the kingdom from Solomon. Four children die violent deaths. Okay, as a king uh, of Israel, and you have these princes, uh, they should live pretty peaceful, pretty quiet, pretty safe lives. Would you agree? To have four children die like that is a, a definite punishment of God on David. Now, here's the wonderful thing. Verse 13. After David realizes everything that uh, Nathan is saying uh, about David, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. The same grace that you and I have because of Jesus Christ, that you can call on the name of Jesus and be forgiven and 
and have eternal life. Uh, God has not changed. He was, he was that way before. He just provided the sacrifice through Jesus Christ to make it available to you and me. Here's what it says. Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. The same lavish, remarkable grace that we experienced, David experienced. That he, he could be forgiven. He had a right relationship with God. Now, there are two elements to uh, sin. One is that no matter how bad you mess up, God loves to forgive if you will just um, repent and confess and bear that to the Lord. Amen? Here's a reality that many Christians don't want to face, is that um, even forgiven sin is costly. It's costly. You can ruin your life. God can forgive you. And he can still uh, have close fellowship with you. And he can still confirm eternal life to you. Um, it doesn't mean you might not pay a high price for the things that you do that are obviously opposed to his will. It's a warning. Um, it's a great encouragement, but it's also a warning. Um, you don't have to live this way. This is the, the power of the Holy Spirit. David knew the law. He had the Holy Spirit. David is one of the few characters in the Old Testament that is said to have perpetually had the Holy Spirit in his life. He wasn't one of these people that the Holy Spirit you know, just came upon in power for a moment and then left. He had the Holy Spirit, and he ignored the Holy Spirit. And I guess, I guess we need to understand, can a Christian do that? You ever wonder why a Christian person would, would cheat on their spouse or steal or lie? or so many other things. Why is that? It's not because the Holy Spirit's not in your life. It's because you've decided that you're entitled to do what you want to do. Take grace for granted and live however you want. And God will just... And I believe that God will forgive you. But man, you may pay a price that you don't want to pay. And there's no need for it. Here's how we defeat this uh, sin, this giant of entitlement. Here's just one word. It's gratitude. I think David could have defeated this giant in one moment if he would have paused and thanked God for all that God had already done in his life. Just pause and praise God. When you're faced with a temptation... The Bible says that um, he will give you a way out. And I believe the way out of entitlement is just gratitude. I love you, God. I thank you, God. You've been so good to me. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for the fellowship that we have because of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Uh, thank you for my, my family. Thank you for my job. Thank you for my health. Thank you for the opportunities that I have, just just begin to pour out that thanks to the Lord. I, I'm telling you, your entitlement spirit will go away. Father, we thank you. We praise you for the grace, mercy, the forgiveness that you pour out on us, Lord. We, we don't deserve it. We know it. We don't we do deserve it, Lord. The Bible never says that we've ever earned it. It's a gift. 
And Lord, we pray that we would always receive that gift with a heart of joy and gratitude. Lord, we, we pray, Lord, for each and every person um, who's right now just overwhelmed with a sense of guilt. It's necessary for a moment, but God, you want to wash that away with peace. You want to remove it and replace it with a, a close, personal confidence in Jesus Christ. There's only one who's ever been perfect. Only one who, who lived a life without fail and without fault. And you are willing to lay that life down that we might be seen as Christ. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. We thank you for that. And God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would empower us again to live a life worthy of that calling. Wherever we may find ourselves today, Lord, I pray that uh, you would call us back deeper into our walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to invite you this morning. If the Holy Spirit is pounding on your heart that there's something you just need to lay at the altar and, and confess to the Lord, uh, don't, don't be like David. Don't wait months. Don't, don't be miserable. Just lay it down and let God replace that guilt with his peace. Amen? Um, if you're a person that is just starting to hear the Holy Spirit knock on the door of your heart and you know that you need Jesus and you have not received him, um, would you make today the day that you open up your heart and you just say yes to Jesus? And maybe you don't have a lot of conviction. Maybe it's just a, a sense of there's something that, that we're talking about here that I have not experienced. In order for that to become your experience, you have to invite Jesus to come into your life. He's willing. He wants to. Um, but you have to say yes. If that's the case, um, I'm just inviting you to make it a, a physical profession as well as an internal one. Just come and lay, da lay down that sin and that heart on the altar and say yes to the Lord. Amen? Let's stand and sing.